Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installments of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. Yours truly is the American Ballet. Winter is certainly upon us, and I hope you're okay despite low shedding challenges, which makes uh, winter more excruciating, if you like. In the same vein, I hope those that are privileged or have means can spare thought for the needy by donating food and blankets uh, to make their lives slightly more bearable. On that pleasant gesture, I'm hoping that we would, the upward trajectory kind of conversation uh, will ensue with my professional speakers here, or my guest here, Billy Silicane, who is a successful businessman and author, an international acclaimed inspirational uh, keynote speaker. Billy will share with us his insight um, in leading during the times of disruptions. His anecdote will obviously be viewed in a context of challenges which leaders face the type of strategies, I would imagine, which they need to employ to navigate turbulences in the political space, in the corporate space, in my view, also in the personal spaces uh, for that matter. Before I engage Billy, one has to move from the premise that um, it is quite useful that to acknowledge the role that is played by the producer of the show. On that note, thank you very much, Harris Akela and Vusma Singer. Without whom your support, uh, without whom your engagement or technical advice would not make this show a success. Uh, moving along, if you missed any of our previous show, not to worry. Simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com, to download any of the previous uh, podcast. Um, just a quick recap. Uh, in my life encounter, I had a privilege of engaging Dr. Ezran Randre, who is a founder and executive chairman, to upon holding. Our conversation was illuminated in so many ways, uh, particularly on the issue of entrepreneurship and the extent which small businesses are suffocating due to inadequacy of support, particularly from government. But I'm not going to bore you much about that. You simply go to our website, download that particular website, and give us your, your thoughts. Our SMS line is 34519. And of course, your views are most welcome via my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Madden. You know, the thrust of our conversation with Billy Lukane here, it's, as I've indicated earlier, it's centered around leadership during times of disruptions or, you know, during difficult times, so to speak. This topic, in my view, is so relevant, particularly uh, given the high unemployment rate in South Africa, inequalities, uh, of which if these issues are not addressed, will certainly undermine the democratic agenda. We all know that social unrest are quite high, electricity crisis, water crisis, lack of investment um, and culture, and so on and so forth. These are some of the issues that gives this particular conversation a validity in that uh, we do need to get a sense from the likes of Billy here on how to how to manage or how to 
to lead during the kind of during chaos. Without any waste of time, let me work, let me take this opportunity to welcome Billy uh, Silakami. Billy, once again, thank you very much for coming through. Thank you very much for this opportunity, my good doctor, and uh, good morning to your listeners. Absolutely. Um, you know, Billy, every time when I have a, an opportunity to engage you, a, a, a quotation comes to mind, and I often look for quotes that are context-specific and which relates to the issue at hand. And I came across a quote by Maxwell Waltz, and I address this. Close scrutiny will show that most crisis situations are opportunities to either advance or stay where you are. I'll repeat it again. Close scrutiny will show that most crisis situations are opportunities to either advance or stay where you are. Your views on that particular topic is, I thought, I mean, that quote by Maxwell World. Well, I guess history consistently repeats itself. If you look at the economy of the U.S. or the history of the U.S. as a country, most major organizations were started during the Great Depression. And again, if you look at the second or the third cycle of the economic downturn, most great organizations were started with, during that time. And if you look at disruption in total, and especially digital transformation, it was started also just after the last uh, economic meltdown. So indeed, in times of disruption, in times of adversity, it depends on how we look at things. Opportunities always lie. I usually say adversity is an opportunity dressed in a different dress. So don't focus on the dress, but focus on the content behind the dress. And that's what it is. In times like this, there definitely are industries that are coming up. Hence, disruption has become the order of the day. I just want to juxtapose this particular quote with the another quote, which pretty much echoes what you've just said. And this is a quote by Robert Kiyosaki. He says, history reminds us that dictators and despots arise during the times of severe economic crisis. When you look at the water crisis, when you look at the electricity crisis, when you look at lack of investment uh, in the country, and when you look at the kinds of shenanigans that has been picked up through the Zonda Commission, to what extent these high-level crises, if you like, create an opportunity for despots to come through, or are we way too far, as uh, Robert Kioski indicated in the quote that I've mentioned? Well, I think it, everything is around context. You know, Dr. Nimrod, if you look at the birth of despots, it happens because people then have a complete mistrust of a current dispensation. And if you look at our young democracy in this country, already there's massive distrust in the concept itself or in the context of the democratic process. It's no longer the disillusion against party X and party Z and party Y, but people are saying all of these guys are the same, they're in it for themselves. Therefore, there's a massive distrust on the system. That does not necessarily mean it may give rise to a despot. But what it has the capacity to do is to create a leaderless revolution, and that leaderless revolution usually leads to anarchy. So that's what really scares me, that where we are now, all the leadership pretenders, we all we know them, I don't have to mention them. They don't have the gravitas, nor the moral obligation, nor the moral high ground anymore to say anything to anybody because all of them are benefiting from the system. When this revolution happens, it's going to happen out of the construct of the current political dispensation. It's going to happen outside, and that's where the danger is. When it happens outside, it means it's going to be leaderless. It means it's going to be sporadic, area to area, place to place, province to province. And that's the danger of a leaderless revolution precipitated by a complete mistrust of a system that is still very embroic in my own take. Well, I suppose there's still a lot of positive things that we can celebrate at this point, despite the number of challenges that we're experiencing. But from your end, as a person who has well-traveled, uh, well-read, engaging with plethora of thought leaders across the world, what would you say are the critical success conditions of a leader 
during the crisis mode as we are in in, in, in today's context? Well, I think, you know, I'm going to talk about leading in these times based on what I call a disrupted world. Now, we are going through some crisis, but within this crisis, there are many new opportunities that have showed up. And that is driven by the emergence of, of exponential growth in technology. So I'm going to share with you five emerging technologies, which if we focus on the crisis that we're facing as a country, we're then going to let behind in number one, understanding these technologies, number two, embracing them, and number three, exploiting them for our own gain in rebuilding our economy and our business. So I'm going to just quickly share the five uh, emerging technologies that we're faced with. Now, the first one is AI, artificial intelligence. I mean, we've seen the growth of chat GPT and many others that are being launched by different organizations that AI is growing exponentially. Question is, do we as South Africans the economy, private sector, and government understand AI, and are we embracing it to shift our businesses and position ourselves no longer as local business, but as global players? The second one is IoT, the Internet of Things. This has been spoken about in many platforms, and it's simple things that means that everything is connected to everything. Therefore, your clients, you know, you've got to distinguish between a brick-and-mortar business and a digital business. And by the way, both have got the potential to become super successful or fail this money. The third one is blockchain technology. We know when you talk blockchain, People usually talk about Bitcoin, but blockchain is much more robust and much more powerful than just it being a blockchain platform. And then there's RPA, which is Robotic Process Automation. If you look at companies like Tesla, I mean, Tesla produced 1,833 cars in the last financial year, and they raked in about $83 billion. And that has been pushed by the fact that they have, you know, they're using advanced robotic technology to build these cars. That's why they can produce them so quickly. The fifth and the last one that I'm going to talk about is augmented and virtual reality. Now, if you look at augmented and virtual reality, it means a little boy in a village in Venda today has the opportunity to learn how to fix a Boeing 787 engine using both augmented or virtual reality. Now, therefore, the question becomes, as these emergent technologies speeding up the growth of economies around the world, are we ignoring them? Are we not aware of them? Are we so inwardly focused and so locally focused that we are now creating a major lagging behind of the embracing of these technologies and making them work so that our economy can become robust and competitive. Interesting observation. Let's take a quick break, Billy. We'll come back in just in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back to you. If you've just joined us, you haven't really missed quite a bit. I am joined by a successful businessman and author and an international acclaimed inspirational speaker by the name of Billy Silicani. Before we enter the break, Billy and I are having a conversation around leading during the crisis environment and what kind of issues or what kind of leaders needs to be present to take advantages of opportunities that could easily be be missed if your glass is half empty. I mean, I like the metaphor of a glass that is half empty or half full 
optimists always look at the glass half full. And this is what I'm picking up from Bailey here, that his views is that a glass should be half full in that we need to be looking at opportunities. He mentioned about five critical areas which our leaders need to be aware of, not only leaders in the, in the public space, leaders in the, or in the private space as in corporations. One is that uh, the extent to which we are recognizing and addressing the imperatives of artificial intelligence, one of the obvious internet of things. Uh, the other one is augmented and virtual reality. There's about five. I just want to pick off on each of the five uh, you know, critical areas which in your view present opportunities for exponential growth. The key word there will be exponential growth. Take us through these and which countries should we be emulating? Even, maybe even before that, Billy, because when we look at these technologies that could exponentially take us forward, they need to be built or making an assumption on the fertile ground in which one, there's a policy environment that is, that will enable it, and two, there is a type of leaders or leadership is ready or is readying the economy to take advantage of those. Maybe let's start with the basis. How ready are we and what will it take for us to be ready as a public space, as in government, or as well as in pub and companies that are supposed to be driving or taking advantage of these kinds of initiatives that you've alluded to? All right. No, thank you, my good doctor. Well, I think what, you know, these technologies that I've just mentioned, like I'm saying, it's just the top of the iceberg. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, amidst this growth that we're seeing, what are the fundamental leadership challenges? What are leaders faced with, both public and private? And I'm going to give you five challenges, and then I'm going to come up with suggested solutions. I think for me and for this country and for the continent, top of the list is ethical and responsible leadership. We are completely out of stock as far as ethical and responsible leadership, so that's the first challenge. The second challenge is the rapid technology change and digital transformation, which I keep saying to people, there's a difference between remote working and digital transformation. Remote working, it means you're at your place, you logged in onto your system, you're working. But that does not necessarily mean that your workplace has been digitally transformed. Because at the end of the day, people are still pushing a lot of papers. And it means we're still running companies that are based on, you know, the work, work models of the 70s. The third one is talent management, retention, and workplace transformation. Now, workplace transformation, sadly to say that in this country, we're supposed to be the flagship or the leaders in transformation. We're still battling in redefining employment equity, affirmative action, very basic concept of transformation. The fourth one is organizational agility and change management. And the last one, of course, is stakeholder engagement and service delivery. Now, that is very critical, stakeholder engagement and service delivery. So I'm going to handle each one of them, and I'm going to suggest three solutions that I believe should be implemented in dealing with these five challenges that I'm sharing with you. So I'm going to start first with uh, ethical and uh, responsible leadership. The first thing around ethical and responsible leadership, it means that we need to have a society both private and public that is built on integrity and transparency. You know, the men and women who are put at the helm of leadership should be men and women of integrity and they must be transparent in everything that they do and there must be a 360 degree accountability. Accountability to the stakeholders, accountability to the clients, accountability to your internal clients which are your employees and accountability to the you know compliant or regulatory framework of this country. Now, unless we, we really put emphasis on creating and building ethical and responsible leadership, anything else that we'll be talking about is just a big noise, it's a soundtrack, it will have no effect anywhere. While the leaders are doing as they wish, they're cutting corners, there's bribe allegations, 
and there's all kind of things that we, we read about and hear about, we'll not be able to handle this thing. So the foundation at which we need to build. Now, the technologies are there. The technologies will always be there. And, you know, I spend a lot of time traveling. I just came back. And, I, you know, I usually spend time in Dubai. I have a love-hate relationship with Dubai. I will not talk about the hate relationship. I'll talk about the love relationship. The love relationship I have with Dubai is the fact that the leadership there is very visionary. I mean, they built this museum called Museum of the Future. To understand how that got to be built is a fascinating story that one needs to follow. And the kind of investment that they're putting on education, on healthcare, on technology, on supporting small businesses is absolutely unbelievable. And yet you've got countries like ours, which by all intents and purposes, you know, you know, in Dubai, actually, the indigenous people of Dubai, in number, they're about 1.2 million, and the rest are expatriates, the people that came there to set up businesses and for opportunities. However, they now run one of the biggest airlines in the world. You know, their infrastructure is growing leaps and bounds. And all of this is based on just simple ethical and responsible leadership. Nothing else. This guys, it was just a desert and few buildings. Now it's a city of the future. You know, we're still talking about, oh, we want to make smart cities. They're living in a smart city, as we speak. And that is not based on the fact that they're smarter than us. That does not based on the fact that they've got better connection than us. That is not based on the fact that they've got more access to capital to this project. But it's simply based on the fact that they've got ethical and responsible leadership that are very visionary in looking at the growth of the account. So that's what we need to do as far as, you know, uh, ethical and responsible leadership. So that's the first thing that I think we need to deal with. Can you maybe just hold on to that because I, I just want to interject, Billy, because I think you're making very profound issue and you're also providing some solution to it, which is quite useful. Yeah. But here's the thing around ethical um, leadership, which is clearly missing in our body politic in South Africa. You know, you look at the Zonal Commission, you look at any other commission. You also look yeah. at the, in the private sector, you look at documents or reports from employment equity reports. Um, and yeah. we look at fronting. There's a whole lot of manner of issues that obviously yeah. come to the fore when you look at both private and public sector organization, because we should yeah. not lose sight of what happens in the private sector organization as yeah. it were. But here's the thing. Um, around the solution moving forward. And I would imagine in Dubai, for them to be where they are, one, it is ethics, but why do you think of deploying people who are competent, people who are skillful in those specific jobs? Wouldn't you say that is part of ethical consideration? Because if you're going to get Billy, who is got a metric and make him a CFO of a municipality, you are not only just acting unethically, but you're also undermining growth as it were. It's true what you say. We cannot run away from the fact that places like Dubai, they've got the right kind of men and women doing the right kind of jobs. Having said that, we should not divorce ourselves to the fact that we're still a developing nation that feels very imbalanced. And I also want to touch a little bit on the private sector, because it's easy for us to always point to the government because they have to account to us as the public. But a lot of private organizations in this country are also the precipitators of corruption. We know that a lot of private companies, we look at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, how many black companies are there and what is the ratio of black executives and women executives? It's shocking after 27 years. It hasn't shifted much. So therefore, even though we want to build and be competitive, we are still a nation in a developmental stage. So we need to have, and all of us, both private and public, we need to buy in onto the developmental agenda of the country. We must be clear about it that we need this country to develop. We're living in two different economies, the developed and the developing economy. We need to find a way of putting checks and balances to make sure that the developed economy carries the developing economy into the next phase of our transformation. Let me give an example. Every township in this country is a mall at the periphery. And that mall is owned by All Mutual, Liberty, and you name it. These are private companies. And when that mall shows up at the peripheral end of a township, what does it do? It quickly kills the local business, the local shop and the local 
bubbles are mini shop. And nobody owns equity uh, in these malls that are at the peripheral side of the townships. Now the blame has to be put both on the private sector and the, and the government. It was government's responsibility to protect the local township economy for them not allowing this gentrification of areas where they are now tending to malls that are benefiting, which are private companies. We need to say, how do we make sure that the developing economy, which is the old mutuals of this world, carries the Tembisa economy, which is the developing economy, so that there's a growth in the local township economy that can eventually move and grow into a very formalized business that can end up at the stock exchange like these guys are. We need to find a balance between the two. You know, this concept that says, I need a cat to chase my rats. I don't care whether it's a black cat or it's a white cat. As long as it catches the rats, I'm happy. In a normal society, that's how it works. But unfortunately, we're not living in a normal society. We're living in an abnormal society where the imbalances of the past, they still haunt us. And I'm not trying to become an apologist and say, let's go back, Jan van Riebeck, blah, blah, blah. But I'm saying, let's become realistic. Let's become realistic by saying ethical and responsible leadership has to happen in both ends. But the end that has got more power and more pool, not the government, is the private sector, because the private sector has got the cash, has got the capital, has got the expertise to speed up transformation than the government has. So it's something that, it's a dialogue with dialogue. It's enough. Even the NDP, the National Development Plan, I don't know who knows about it. It's like this, the most secret document in this country. We need a new social construct that is not driven by government, but driven by civil society and corporate to say, how do we fix this country to make sure that the formal economy helps the informal economy to grow so that we don't only share the small pie, but to grow the pie so that everybody can have a piece of that pie. I think you've made some very interesting observations, particularly when you look at the extent to which townships have been, the word is the township have experienced avalanche of uh, malls that aren't necessarily owned by those who live around this particular environment. But perhaps maybe there the question could be, the extent to which accountability, because therein lies how you bring it, all the stakeholders around the table and say, how do we yeah. create equity in the kind of investment that are taking place? Because it would be useful to have empirical evidence that says all these malls that have been, you know, developing townships, who are the actual owners, and the extent to which there's been, we've got your taxi industry, you've got the busing industry, you've got Pretty much all the sectors, how are they represented in those particular? They are not represented, we all know that. We don't need to make research, you know, we don't need to. We just need to go to the stock exchange and look at people's annual financial reports. They are not. I mean, Tembisa's got how many malls outside of Tembisa? And who owns those malls? They are not. You go everywhere, everywhere in this country. When there's a mall that is outside of the township, I can promise you, if there's some equity owned by local people, it's less than zero, zero, zero point one percent. And that's just, those are just underlying facts. And therefore, as a nation, we cannot just turn a blind eye to this. You know, I mean, one of the things that I listened to a interview of somebody who works for the Checkers Group. I mean, these guys were saying they're going to open two to three stores a day for the next whatever year or 12 months. And it's billions and billions of rents. But all of these are owned by that corporate. I don't see them saying, let's bring in black people who've got spaza shops. You know, when they did that, which I don't want to mention the name of the company because I might be sued, it became disastrous for the blacks. They, they made them sign an amazing contract. Those guys are still trying to get out of the debts that they were given by this retailer, which came not with good intention, but wanting to siphon the little money that was in the township. Ethical leadership and responsible leadership to be, has to cut on both ends. But for me, more than anything else, the private sector has to show up because we all clearly know that our government is incompetent. We all know. It's not rocket science. We don't need to go to Harvard to know that. And we all know that the private sector, South African private sector, the banking system of this country is one of the most sophisticated in the world. And yet it still excludes the men in the township.
Perhaps maybe what, because I do like the point that you're putting across, particularly from inclusivity point of view, an extent to which, in your view, there's no need to make any other research or further research for the data speak for itself. Um, and this is the phase when, particularly from um, ethical issues, which by virtue of having these kinds of outlets, we need to begin yeah. to ask ourselves those basic questions, which are inherently moral and ethic in the orientation for if you are not promoting inclusivity, for if you're not promoting opportunities other than just opportunities for, for people being employed, but people yeah. getting stake. I think what I'm picking up from you, you're more concerned about the, the ownership aspect of these kinds of investments which are taking place in the townships, which in your view aren't necessarily addressing the profile of those that live yeah. in there. Am I correct? Yes, because we all know that access is temporary, but ownership is uh, it's full-time. So you can't say, oh, but now you don't have to get into a taxi to go to Camden Park. You can walk to the next mall. Yeah, I can walk in there. You're giving me access to the mall, but do I own it? Am I getting any equities there, any return on investment? For me, as a local citizen, no, there isn't. And I think we shouldn't fool ourselves in thinking that this is going to stay the way it is for the next five years. This leaderless revolution I'm talking about, that's where it's going to begin. People are going to look at this mall and say, we'll go to check us here, we'll go to pick and pay. And the only thing that they do, these guys, is on, on Mandela Day, they come and paint a little crash and take pictures. That's all they do. We're getting nothing. And they will walk in there and say, we're taking it. I'm saying this with the greatest responsible mind and heart. However, we all know we've got over 60% youth unemployment. We're sitting on a ticking time bomb unless there's real good intentions and meaningful intentions from both the private and the public sector, more so the private sector, in assisting this country to reshape and rebuild its economy and to make it as inclusive as it should be. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by the one and only Billy Silicon, a successful businessman and internationally acclaimed uh, speaker. And, you know, before we went to the break, he gave us a, essentially about five, you know, challenges that are, that are facing, uh, public representation or public representatives as well as, uh, private representatives or companies, uh, so to speak. One was ethical and responsible leadership. The second one was rapid and digital transformation. The third one was talent management and workforce transformation. And the fourth one was organizational culture from mistaking. The fifth and the last being the stakeholder engagement and service delivery. But, you know, on the issue of ethical and responsible leadership, he gave us obviously some of the solutions that he thinks could really make a difference and bring about equity. Let's now get into um, the second item that you've was being that one being uh, rapid and digital transformation. How is it? What are the issues here, and how do we leverage on digital transformation? All right. The first thing that we need to do, we need to upskill and reskill our people. 
Because I can tell you now, if you look at India and you look at how India has embraced technology, now India has become the technology hub of the world. Why did they do that? How did they get there? Because they took a deliberate decision that math and science are the core subjects taught that must be the language of India. And by, by extension, then technology becomes embraced easily and then you're able to create an army of coders. We all know India's got an army, an army of hundreds of thousands of coders. So we need to upskill and reskill. We need to do it now. Here's the thing. If you look at our educational system, again, man, our educational system, people say this and that. I still believe it's, it's a little bit archaic because we're still having a monologue. One teacher standing in front and telling students what to do. We need to change the trajectory of how we teach people. We've got guys in the township, uh, Dr. Nimrod, who did not make it to matric, but these guys are smart. They know how to use technology. We need to create processes where we can teach these kids in the township, especially what I call the youth in the gap. Those that did not finish matric, that dropped out because of circumstances they found themselves in. We need to make the accessibility of technical skills and knowledge easily available. Having said that, I'm going to put a little twist into it. We should not forget the physical and very critical technical skills like plumbing, bricklaying, tile. No, those are very critical. We also need to find a balance between the two. We can't go crazy digitally and forget to take those that are gifted to their hands and leave them behind. We need to find a nice and a beautiful balance between the two. The third thing that we need to do is we've got to invest in digital infrastructure. I mean, people think just having Wi-Fi available, digital infrastructure, it's much more deeper than that. It is the computers used, the kind of servers that we have, you know, the kind of access that people have. I mean, if you look at township schools, they can have Wi-Fi, whatever, but do they have Macs, you know, super amazing computers that they can begin to code, sophisticated code that can help us solve challenges that we're faced with. So we need to invest in a very powerful digital infrastructure. And I'm sure you've heard in the news, one of the government agencies was hacked. Actually, one of the banks was hacked too, again. Poor digital infrastructure leads to super smart hackers getting into a system and messing it up. The third one is we need to create a robust and an agile digital strategy for the country, which can then be cascaded into departments, into provinces, and into municipalities. I mean, if you go to a municipality, they still use old computers. It's down. This is not working. That is not working. It's like you can see we're very, very, like, backwards. If you look at Cape Town. You know, Cape Town has an office. The city of Cape Town has an office in Silicon Valley. They have an office that is based there, which interacts with the creators in Silicon Valley to make sure that Cape Town becomes the Silicon Valley of Africa. And actually, they are getting to very close to achieving that status. How did it happen? Again, question of leadership. So we cannot understand emerging technologies and trends if we're just closed up in our own little cocoons and hoping that whatever we do is going to work. We've got to open ourselves up, got to be smart, we've got to be agile, we've got to be adventurous, and we've got to be, be able to fail forward and fail fast, you know. Try new things, fail, add these new things, learn from them and move forward. But we're slow, we're very slow in adapting. I mean, if you look at artificial intelligence, I mean, every other, I mean, there's a new one that has been launched. I'm part of a think tank in the U.S. There's a new one that is going to be launched in September. It's just going to, you know, it's going to revolutionize content delivery, content creation, videos, it's, gonna, it's just going to transform the world and it's going to be up and going on the, in the 1st of September. We should be at that game. We should be able to create these kind of things. But we can't if we don't, you know, have a clearly defined digital strategy as a nation, as companies, as provinces and as municipalities. But here's the thing, Billy, and I'm glad that I'm, you are one of the people or one of the South Africans who are almost like a world um, citizens. You've just came back yeah. from Europe, came back from the U.S., to what extent do you think these issues that you've picked up are addressed or are not addressed by the president? I mean, the president has so many counsels, so many advisors. <laughs> what do you think is a problem there? Because these issues don't appear to be rocket science, as you've 
put it. To what extent are we not embracing these issues? I mean, you've got universities, uh, you've got high-profile individuals who sit and advise the president. We've got the Human Science uh, Development Council, which is the statutory body chaired by the deputy president of the country, wherein these kind of issues are being tabled, discussed, and probably mapped out. What is the mischief from that end? Well, what do they say? They say those who are in power have got no ideas, and those whose ideas have got no power. <laughs> I love this we are a classical dichotomy, you know. <laughs> so these questions that you're asking me are really profound and deep questions. And I've always looked at the many presidential advisors and I keep asking myself, what do they really advise the president on? Because we don't see a shift in the things that we're talking about now. I think we've got to accept that there has to be a me- not a measure, there has to be a clearly defined strategic alliance between the public and the private sector. The private sector has to embrace the public sector and really help them to speed up these processes. Unfortunately, one of the things that is stopping us as a country to move very quickly is our, our policy infrastructure framework is very, very slow. So our policies are not agile. They don't move with the times. And we need to get our policies to be agile and to be driven by the change and transformation that's happening in the world. I'll give you an example. During COVID, people working at home, this remote working. Now, out of COVID, everybody's forced to come back to the office. It doesn't make sense. If they were able to deliver at home, why, why force them to come back to the office? Create more traffic on the road, the consumption of gas, and all these kind of things. Because there's not really defined policy on how to deal with remote working. Why don't we just create a policy, flag it out in the system, and apply it, and let people do what needs to be done, and let's stop being an input-driven economy and be an output-driven economy. For me, as a person that runs an organization, it does not matter where you're working from. What matters is, are you going to deliver on the target that we've agreed on? That's all I'm interested in. Whether you're sitting in a beach in Bali or in Mauritius or in a park in Central Park, as long as you deliver based on what our agreement is, based on our strategy and our annual performance plan, that's all that's critical for me. And I think our policy framework has to be agile. We have to change policies from the public sector, and we need to create this strategic, clearly defined strategic alliance between major players in the private sector and major departments so that we can shift and move this country as quick as possible. I'm loving your observations and insights, and on that note, we're going to quickly take a break and come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. Uh, Nimrod Tembele here, joined by an esteemed uh, Billy Slekane, who is a author, a serial business folk, as well as a motivational speaker. And before we, we went to that particular break, Billy was giving us some of the key challenges under the rapid and digital transformation, which is a second item which he thinks leadership who leads amidst chaos needs to attend to. What I really like, personally, maybe you can clarify with me here, is that there is a misalignment between the policy configuration on issues such as working condition, as an example. COVID-19 
any of you has given us an opportunity to review and revise working hours and how people work. And we don't seem to have leverage on that particular environment to amend the policies so that, so, so such that we alleviate the stress that we see on, on our roads so that we inculcate a mentality of productivity based on outputs. And for us to really move forward or to leapfrog, if you like, we need to create partnership with like-minded institutions so that we're able to mitigate the risk of being overtaken, um, as it were. Am I correct? That's my take based on Absolutely. what you're saying. Absolutely. You're 100%. You're 100% correct. Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm saying here. Yeah. We've got discovered, we've got massive hospital group called The Life, whatever. Why can't those, why can't we create a, what I call a community of practice between the two private major organizations and the Department of Health and say, how do we deliver cutting-edge health solutions to the nation in a cheaper, more equitable, and easily accessible way? These guys are smart. They are in that same industry, but they're doing it for profit, and government is doing it for social impact. But we know that these private sector guys, they're on top of their game. Why can't we create that, uh, you know, we, we have we have these public-private partnerships, but they're not being able to work as quick as they should. Again, they're being hamstrung by the slow transformation of the policy from the government side. We've got to speed up this, otherwise we'll, we'll be left behind, and we are left behind anyway. You know, we need to really speed up. But there's an issue, which is linked to your third item, which is on talent management and with and workplace transformation. The same triple P that you referring to makes an assumption that those that are in the leadership position are well-versed with the need to expedite the policy confinement or policy imperatives such that we are not left behind. What will be required to activate these kinds of issues, basically telling us about talent management um, in the workplace, which uh, at least from that uh, from the triple P point of view, it is focused yeah. on government. But let's also bring it back to ordinary corporate. How are we managing talent with a view to take advantage of these kinds of opportunities that are presented by by rapidly you know by by rapid digital transformation mm. that you that you put yeah. forward well i think if we look at the corporate world every organization have got their vision mission core values and key to their business is their value proposition you know what are they going to deliver to customers for customers to give them money in return and i think both at the public and the private environment we need to create very robust employee value propositions. Why should people come and work for your business? By the same token, why should people not go to the private sector and go to the public sector? What is the value proposition that government department have for this new talent that is coming? And if there's not clearly defined and clearly spoken and clearly positioned employee value proposition, people are not coming to the government because there's a perception that the government is slow, that is a place to rest, that nothing happens. And there's a thin line between perception and reality. The private sector is able to attract because they say flexible working hours, you know, good leaves, medical aid, and those kind of things. Now, those are the basics, but there's more that we need to offer to be able to attract the right kind of talent. And I believe, as we all know, one of the biggest challenges in our government environment was the cadre deployment, which has been a disaster for ages, and which seems it's not being handled. Nothing seems to be happening on that end. We need, we need to be honest about it. That is one of the critical things that has caused our government to fail. Cadre deployment, people that are put in there because of their proximity to power, but they've got no skill at all to deliver on the mandate of that particular department or municipality. We need to now set, you know, the president spoke about professionalizing the public sector. I don't know what they're doing. I've not seen anything, or maybe I'm ignorant. But we need to be clear about what is the government's employee value proposition. When a young man who's very bright or a young girl who's very bright graduates from vets and gets headhunted by discovery and get hunted by public health, why should she go to public health instead of discovery?
the only thing that's going to sway this person is if there's a clearly defined employee value proposition. We all go to a place where we identify with what's in it for me. What am I getting for showing up here? And if there is no visible way of communicating that, we will never get good talent going to government. I do appreciate some of the shortcomings that you are putting forward, particularly in the public space wherein there seems to have been a challenge in templating performance. First and foremost, it has to do with your recruitment and selection. It has to do with the standards which needs to be upheld. And the reason why I'm raising these issues are at the back of the cadre deployment uh, phenomenon which you've just put forward, which means for the country to be professionalized as this president has pronounced, we obviously need to get to those kind of basic but there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are already in the system, and it's going to be very difficult to have them outstead purely because they, some of them have qualifications, they don't have skills or competence. That That is a big issue. I mean, as from what it is, uh, you know, some of the parastatals which are pretty much on the brink of collapse are as a result of some of the issues that you've pointed to. Then they turn around. How do you manage to turn around from a leadership point of view amidst those kinds of issues? One thing to make a pronouncement on paper that you want to professionalize, and it is another because you have to yeah. recognize yeah. those uh, issues, uh, the dead ends, incompetent people, and we, we, which bring the entire public sector into a questionable state of affairs. How do you begin to deal with that? Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure how many departments we have. I, I, I can't remember offhand how, how many departments we have. But I think I once wrote a paper or once spoke in some radio station, and I suggested that we create a council of wise men and wise women. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, we say health, for argument's sake, we say the health industry, private health industry. Who are the sharpest guys and women? Okay? We get 10 of them, whatever number. We go to, to road infrastructure, all of these places that mirror the departments. We get 10 of the top in each one, and then again... It goes to policy framework. We then negotiate with government for a joint deployment of this private sector, I call them tier one operators, to come in and beef up what's already available in government, to speed up on delivering on critical infrastructure or critical processes that have to be delivered immediately. So let me give an example. If they bring Joe Blue to Department X and say to him, you are here to only help us with these two things, digital transformation or the setting up of a robust uh, digital strategy, and the setting up of a digital uh, infrastructure. That's your responsibility. Everything else leave it to us. And in doing that, you're going to be merged with our head of technology, whatever, so that there's a clear skills transfer. And you put contracts in place that are ethical, that are above board. You put in timeframes. You make budget available. I can promise you now the backlogs that we have in many departments can be dealt with very quickly. But again, it's going to go back to policy framework. It's going to go back to political willingness because everything in this country is politics. You know, everything is just politics. I mean, the vote in Parliament for the NHI was voted against by somebody, which I don't want to mention name, and it's just political point scoring. It's got nothing to do with people having the welfare of the normal men and women of this country at heart. And we must get over politics. We must think about how, what is it that we need to do to get this country to work. The only way to get this country to work is to partner private sector and public sector, but also to relocate our policy framework and make sure that this agile enough to be adoptive, to make sure that such partnerships can happen and can deliver value. You made reference to a council of wise men and wise women, uh, which yes. uh, which needs to be deployed, strategically deployed to unblock yes. some of the challenges in these government departments or SOEs. Yes. To what extent was that concept or approach or strategy embraced by the government? Did you see the light at the end of the tunnel? What were the issues? I haven't, that? you know. <laughs> 
I haven't. I, I guess maybe one of the things that I must do is to to go and have coffee with my with my brother, who's the premier, and perhaps say, let's do this in Houten and see if it will work. I believe it's a working solution. I believe it can be done. You know, I'll give an example. You know, in the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, and those kind of places, they usually take retired top tier operators and they deploy them where they fund. So let's say they want to fund a village or a province to do certain things, they then beef up the local administration with international expertise to make sure that the investment that they put, they get an ROI. And it, it seems to be working. And why can't we do the same thing? So I hope I can have tea with him. I hope some, some of his people are listening and they can talk to my people <laughs> and we can sit. <laughs> and we can sit and see if we can't do a, a, a simple pilot. But I believe it can work, Nimrod. I believe guys like you are governance specialists with guys that are you know, we've got clever people in this country that are true patriots, but they're just being kept away from the system for whatever reasons. And I think it's time for us to put politics aside and put country ahead of party. I think that's what we need to do. I think you spot on, Billy, and let's hope uh, people who are listening to the show would certainly let's mobilize. Hope people, the... His people who call my people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality, Billy, we know that there's a lot of sabotage um, in, in this kind of issues. And when there are sabotage, it's something that needs to be recognized, particularly from a organizational cultural point of view, because if that yeah. is the case, you cannot be oblivious or naive to think uh, sabotage does not exist. The same cadet yeah. deployment who would have been in those kind of environment are the very first people to be sabotaging the very same kind of initiative. So there has to be uh, checks and balances to, to mitigate yeah. those kinds of risks. Absolutely. But me and you know every project that gets designed, you then have a, a risk management plan to mitigate such risks. And and of course, people sabotage and people do all kinds of nefarious things. But if you have planned ahead, you can be able to mitigate and make sure that at least you achieve about 70% of the set objectives. Absolutely. Unfortunately, going up to liberty, Billy, it has been absolutely beautiful to having you on board. Uh-huh. I certainly believe that the listener have food for thought and there's some critical insights and observation based on your articulated uh, worldview, which uh, have you know, remnants in what we do on a day-to-day basis. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to serve. And thank you to your listeners. Absolutely. They were, that's Billy, uh, Billy Silicane, a, a well-renowned author, as well as a public speaker, businessman, giving us intricacies of how to lead in our midst chaos and some of the practical solutions that he puts forward in trying to make South Africa a better place to be. Fortunately, we, let's win up to live it there. Look after yourself. Be kind. And let's get this country back on track as it should. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.